This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Kenneth L. Woodward served as Newsweek's religion editor from 1964 to 2002, where he was also the author of some 1,000 articles, including more than 70 Newsweek cover stories. He's written for a variety of other publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, First Things, and the Christian Century. He's the author of several books, including Making Saints, How the Catholic Church Determines Who Becomes a Saint, Who Doesn't and Why, and The Book of Miracles, The Meaning of the Miracle Stories in Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism. His most recent book is Getting Religion, Faith, Culture, and Politics from the Age of Eisenhower to the Era of Obama. Kenneth Woodward, welcome to Thinking in Public. Mr. Woodward, you had the front row seat in many ways in terms of observing American religion, at least for the second half of the 20th century and into the 21st. How exactly did you come to that position, and and what does that say as a part of the story? I came by accident. Um, I was working on a little weekly newspaper in Omaha, Nebraska, and I thought it was time maybe I went to see how I could make my fortune in New York, and I came back with an offer from Time Magazine to work in their Chicago bureau, and from Newsweek, which is a magazine I had never read, uh, to be their religion editor. And um, they used to say around Newsweek, I'm the only guy, uh, the only writer who came in over the transom. Uh, that's not usually the way you get hired uh, at, a, at a news magazine. And the other interesting thing is that the one person I knew at Time Magazine had been at Notre Dame five years ahead of me and was indeed a very good student and very much a disciple of the same English professor. And uh, one day I walked in to see how about getting a job, and the next day I find out I'm his opposite number, uh, and we're going to be competitors for the next few years. Well, I think a part of this that, uh, that certainly means a great deal to me is reflection on the role of the weekly news magazine in American culture In the second half of the 20th century, I grew up uh, every week expecting, uh, even as a teenager, to read U.S. News and World Report, Time, and Newsweek magazine because they were indispensable to understanding the world. At least they were to me, and I think they were to many others as well. That's part of the reason I wrote the book, although I didn't put journalism in the title. I could have because I'm showing people – the value of, of, of what we did. Um, people, let's say the New York Times, the Washington Post, the newspaper men would say, look, how can you do this? Uh, uh, you know, one person reports a story, the other person, you know, writes the story, and somebody else uh, edits it. Um, and I said, no, when we were in the back of the book, which means doing sports or law or medicine, um, we did most of our own reporting. Um, we had researchers uh but we did a lot of the research ourselves, or you had to point out where to get it. And, um, and of course, we got edited. So it was, uh, you know, I think we were, we were um, exercising all the uh, skills that a journalist was expected to do. But behind us, behind us was this vast um, bureau system that we had around the world so that we more information came in every week in, in terms of suggest story suggestions and so forth than we actually went out and got printed in the magazine so it was like being on the 
on the uh, small end of a, of a wonderful funnel in which you got uh, information from all over the world and uh, didn't always use it. My impression as a, uh, as a young person, uh, I think validated over time, is that the political spectrum in America was represented by those three magazines, with U.S. News and World Report being the most conservative, Newsweek being the most liberal, and Time being somewhere in the middle. Is, is that fair? Probably not. Uh, certainly true of U.S. and New World Report, U.S. News and World Report, because they really were a business magazine and they were oriented towards a business culture. Um, they really didn't have um, a religion section until very late in the game, uh, as well as a lot of other things. Um, Newsweek was more directly modeled on uh, Time magazine, when, of course, that was the Ur form, it was the first of its kind. Um, and imitated it that way. Uh, actually, um, before I got to Newsweek, it, it, it was, you would have found that uh, pretty conservative too, I think. Um, since I didn't read the magazine, I only see it in back issues. When I arrived, uh, the Washington Post had bought it, and they determined to take it and in directions that were different from Time magazine, and one of the directions, not ideological or at all political, was to say, uh, we're going to be a writer's news magazine, whereas Time was an editor's news magazine, which is to say they rewrote an awful lot. In fact, the story was that Whitaker Chambers once wrote the whole, <laughs> a whole issue of Time. I suppose that is uh, uh, apocryphal, but it seemed like he did. They would just wrap their arms around their stuff, your stuff, and you know, sometimes didn't recognize it when it was done. Not so uh, at Newsweek, and certainly not about religion, because I was hired because they assumed I knew about religion, and they assumed it because I was Catholic, and they assumed it because I went to Notre Dame. Those are not very strong assumptions, but it tells you a little bit about about how um, disconnected most of the editors were from the world of religion. Yeah, I think one of the things that probably framed my, uh, my, my reference there is uh, that between Time and Newsweek, when I was in high school especially, and the Vietnam controversy was raging so, uh, so wildly, uh, it, was, it was at least visible to me that Newsweek uh, took a, a more liberal position on that and I think the abortion issue, at least by my recollection back during that period, time representing I think the legacy of Henry Luce was still kind of a cold warrior vehicle. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that was a distinction that was clear to me as a teenager anyway. But the point is I wouldn't have missed a single issue of any of those magazines because I wanted to understand the world. Well, uh, first of all, I think what you just said is absolutely true. Um, we we were more liberal under uh, uh, the Washington Post and Oz Elliott, and the, that's part of the new direction that they wanted to take. And they also, um, yeah, the war brought out a lot. At some point, you had to declare and you had to uh, take a stand. They felt, and all the newspapers did too, if you remember. But the other thing, and what you're talking about, is something we uh, uh, let's say we had part of our franchise, really, as. Uh, news magazine writers was to uh, not only report what happened, but also to tell you what it meant as much as we could, or at least for that week. Um, they describe it in the book, and, and you notice there's a lot about the news magazine form in that book, a lot about time as the uh, forerunner. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you talked about what it meant, and uh, that's a little bit uh, different function. 
not every not every um, story, but certainly in cover stories and so on. Uh, so uh, that's a little different exercise. We just didn't always leave things up in the air. So it depended also on who you talked to. It's easy to shape a story if you want to in a particular direction by calling on the people you know what they're going to say ahead of time. And uh, that's something that's open to a writer, and, uh, and it shouldn't be that way, and I'm hoping it wasn't that way very often. You know, in terms of your story at Newsweek, there's a pre-story, a pre-history, and that involves your childhood and your education. You grew up as a, uh, as a boy in Roman Catholicism. I really appreciated where you defined that at one point by saying that to be a Catholic at, at, in that era was to find yourself in what you called concentric circles of belonging. I find that to be an extremely powerful expression, concentric circles of belonging. It's actually my favorite expression, um, at the center of concentric circles of belonging. And it's true. That's a communitarian perspective, but it's also real. And at the end of the book, as you probably know, I describe as I say that that's gone. It really is gone. And it wasn't just the church, um, but it was also neighborhood um, community. And I was in a suburb of 11,000 west side of Cleveland, because the whole town belonged to us. You know, kids went out in the morning, came back at night, and, you know, all the freedom that we had, because there wasn't the fear, because there wasn't the drugs to fear, all of that. I did that for my grandchildren as readers and my children, because I wanted them to know that uh, the world isn't always, hasn't always been the way they find it right now. And uh, I think that we have to, to, um, I think we have to decide what kind of society we want, and um, there were aspects of that that um, were superior to what's available today. That's what I'm saying in that piece. Well, I understand and, that, that and, and certainly in terms of a childhood that now uh, that I experienced in my own evangelical Protestant way. That's now uh, and had my own concentric circles of belonging, mm-hmm. but uh, but I, I, I sense that uh, that my children and grandchildren. Uh, can only know that world through me and many of your readers through you. Exactly. I the, the nicest thing I've uh, reaction to the book I've heard is that you know, people around my age would say, "Oh my God, I've forgotten about that." Uh, gee, I remember that. You know, uh, it's as if it were buried and you brought it back to life. And um, writers tend to be people who tuck away experiences and never quite let go of them and remember them and. Uh, I'm glad I was able to remember a lot of that. It, some people said it was idealistic, and yeah, I suppose unless you were really hurt in those uh, by one thing or another, that um, might other uh, you might remember them somewhat differently. Right. But that's the way I remember them, and you know that's the way the world was. Uh, too many people will say, "Oh, don't talk to me about the '40s or the '50s. Look at racism. Look at the role of women." That wasn't all there was to it. What every, what every generation does is raise the next. And in terms of the experiences of children being raised, um, sorry, but I think they were better off then. When you arrived at Newsweek magazine, and uh, the way you told that story is really interesting, but you went basically uh, trying to get a job at Time, and you end up eventually the religion editor uh, for, for Newsweek magazine. You described Time during that era as being a, a journal where Religion was in the air, and I think in terms of that of cover stories on Tillich and, and Bart and Niebuhr and C.S. Lewis, 
Newsweek, on the other hand, really didn't have much interest, visible interest in religion at all. Uh, no, it didn't. And, um, and so it was, I was given, a, therefore, given a free hand. Um, I used to tell people, and I still do, you know, in those days, and for the next 20 years, uh, the editors wanted, in the religion department, first of all, they wanted stories about Catholics. Secondly, they wanted stories about Catholics. Third, they wanted stories about Catholics. And fourth, everybody else, until, uh, you know, the Carter administration, when evangelicals became more uh, politically and publicly active and visible, then they wanted stories on, on them. But a lot of the editors were uh, from mainline Protestant uh, backgrounds, although most of them probably were, were secular Jews. And um, they weren't interested. I remember trying selling a cover story on Methodism, and I got nowhere. Those are boring people, you see. So uh, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but that's what they wanted. And that's why they had me where it was. Of course, this was the beginning when I walked in. It was toward the end of Vatican Council too, and time was uh, had more people over there, and uh, a lot more actually in Rome and um, in their bureau, uh, including an ex-Jesuit seminarian. And so, um, and, and this was a, uh, a church that couldn't change, and here it was changing. Uh, that generated an awful lot of news. And then as I write in there, um, I got a hold of Marty and some other people and said, look, uh, the rocks moved. What's the Protestant reaction? So there was a cover story uh, that dealt with that, with Robert McAfee Brown on the cover. I so want to get it, to that in just a moment. Let me, let me ask you something before we leave the, the Catholic side of, uh, yeah. of, of the equation here. Mm-hmm. I was really interested where you describe some of the post-Vatican II changes in Catholicism, and, and I'll use the sociologist term here in terms of lived religion. Right. And, and you make the observation that when the Catholic Church changed many of its uh, requirements and teachings, including Meatless Fridays and all the rest— in, in your book, you argue that this left many Catholics, your word was uh, a feeling boundaryless. That's another of my favorite words. Thank you very much. Um, you read the book closely. It's true. Um, um, uh, um, you can't leave people boundaryless. And that's why, uh, you know, you need norms. Um, and Meet on Friday was a big one. Uh, it separated them from everybody. Who else did that? And as I said, the Catholics had there were sins that only Catholics could commit. That's at least tongue in cheek, but uh, yes, that the, that served as identifiers of who you were. And uh, and of course, what happened in the '60s is the baby boomer came along, and they simply flooded all the institutions, including the churches, and it was clear in the universities and the colleges uh, and boundaries. It wasn't a good time to change boundaries because the people were running, you know, flooding over the boundaries. The waters were flooding over the boundaries is what I'm saying, waters of social change. So, yes, I think it's very important, and I think of all those church-related Protestant colleges in Ohio who um, taught formation as Catholics did. They were created for that, and uh, uh, they just, uh, that's disappeared, um, and the reasons why are, uh, are numerous, but... Uh, Nonetheless, they did disappear. Really interesting point that you make in the book, and uh, and that was your cover story on Robert McAfee Brown, or at least a cover story on mainline Protestantism, in which his was the image you put on the cover. 
Right. And uh, and in one sense, uh, that was a sign of the dominance of the so-called Protestant mainstream back then, the, the, the spinal column of liberal Protestantism in America. But then you make the very same point that, uh, that by the time that cover story ran, uh, I'm using your words here, the age of established Protestantism was over. Yeah, it really, it, it really was. And when you think of establishing Protestantism, Excuse me, I think of a man like John Foster Dulles, a man of many parts, right? Played an enormous Indeed. role, uh, and, uh, but also in the World Council of Churches um, and in the National Council of Churches. All those words blended. It was also a time when, um, uh, when, when, when the young men who went into the seminary came of uh, education and, and class level that uh, their options were to be doctors and lawyers and and um, and captains of industry. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Remember, that's the level from which the uh, mainline Protestant seminaries uh, drew their uh, drew their people. So yes, it was a time, and, and you're right. It was it it really did it really did disappear. And part of it was part of it. One has to have sympathy with well, I can have sympathy with it anyhow. But but the uh, Fact is that, in an effort to to respond to Jesus's command that we all may be one, um, they uh, elided uh, specific differences, uh, and uh, you can't keep, let's say, a hearty Methodist tradition going if you're sharing the pulpit all the time with an Episcopalian, uh, Episcopal parish, or something like that. Um, those boundaries were also. Um, uh, in a sense, overcome, and so you got a generic uh, mainline Protestantism, and I think, as you know from the book, something of a generic evangelicalism as well. Absolutely, you know, I cannot read or hear of John Foster Dulles, and you're you're absolutely right—a man of parts, as the British would say. Without uh, without thinking of Winston Churchill's quip after he met with him, dull, duller, dullus, uh, in that he was so much the the kind of vanilla mainstream protestantism that marked the united states and uh, and and yet by the time he died his own offspring were divided between the uh, the basically secular and one son who became of all things a convert cardinal of the roman catholic church there's, there's a parable there oh yes i knew avery dulles a jesuit yeah um there is something interesting i always one, one of the high points of my career, I told Avery one time before he died, obviously, I said, look, I said, I always wanted to fly to Dulles Airport in Washington uh, to be picked up by um, Avery Dulles, the Jesuit, in his uncle, uh, his uncle's car, the uncle that was head of the CIA. No, very much established, and it weighed on him a little bit, too, I think. Yeah, Anyhow, he was, a, he was a distinguished, uh, distinguished guy. A lot of the sense I used to say that uh, I used to quip that uh, Methodists do the, the feeling for the Presbyterians, and the Presbyterians do the thinking for the Methodists. Um, but there are modalities here, and I recently got involved in reading um, uh, John Wesley and uh, how a century after he lived. Um, uh, they were comparing him to Ignatius Loyola. Now, I happened, as a religion writer, to be interested in the differences between the traditions more than the sameness. You know, I was an app. Sure. And, 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 and I've seen a lot of those disappear. Some don't, probably so. But sometimes, sometimes the genius of the, 
founding founder doesn't doesn't um, you know uh, flitters away, and I think yes. that's a, I think that's a real loss to tell you the truth. And by the way, making an uh, making analogies, um, I did mention in the book that when I uh, we got invited down to talk to the Southern Baptist, W. C. Fields was in charge of things those days. Um, I got from a, a sense of that uh, community where, you know, where the Baptists uh, congregated, uh, where there were lots of them, or as I say, those towns where there's more Baptists than there are people. Um, so I think we all participate in a, in a communal thing. Uh, we recognize it differently, um, but, uh, but it's there, and it was important. Yeah, I had the uh, opportunity to sit next to uh, Cardinal Dulles for uh, for many hours one day in the, in the course of a meeting, and uh, he was uh, he was indeed a great intellectual and a great gentleman. And at one point in the conversation, which was about evangelicals and Roman Catholics, he simply he simply made the quip, "Well, at least I can understand this from both sides, having been a Protestant and now being a Cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church." I dare say there are few people ever in the history of humanity who could make a similar kind of claim, uh, and, and quite as graciously as Cardinal Dulles made it. But that also brings me around to, to that conversation and to the fact that by the time you look at the 1980s, you're already looking at the undeniable collapse of the religious mainstream in the United States. You're, you're looking at the transformation of Catholicism into something different, and you're also looking at the, uh, the evaporation of the liberal Protestant churches that had been so much at the center of America's public and civic life. And, and again, you had the front row seat for this. What happened? Oh, I'm always tempted to say, you know, read my book and, and, and see. Um, they're on different trajectories. Um, uh, I, 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 I just think there was a loss of identity. I mean, the fact of the matter is, and I picked them up because Presbyterians study themselves almost as much as American Jews study themselves. Um, they, uh, they, I mean, the truth is, little Presbyterians didn't grow up to be big Presbyterians. They grew up to be nothing at all or something else. And um, so I think why that happened, uh, there would be several reasons, loss of identity, lack of interest. Um, uh, there was a sense of so identifying with the country and evangelicals, Billy Graham in particular, haven't been um, have been haven't been immune to this. Um, it was their world. Even as even Harvey Cox's Secular City, as I pointed out, was a uh, was a iteration reiteration of of, of, of uh, that um, the Protestant churches would be still be leading, albeit, uh, sure. you know, in a covert way. Um, I think they just got overwhelmed. And what happened, a lot of evangelical, I'm talking now about the Pentecostal in particular and so on, instead of moving up from Pentecostal to, uh, you know, to Methodist, to Episcopalian, they brought their churches with them. They settled into the, uh, the, into the suburbs, and that's where you see them now. So there wasn't that, that as you moved up in class, you know, you know all the old jokes, uh, you know, Baptist, uh, Presbyterian is a, what, a, a Baptist with shoes or something like that. All that, 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 that class-based uh, transformation within American Protestantism, um, I think, ceased 
uh, to exist in a lot of ways. Um, but eventually, they couldn't tell you the difference between a Presbyterian and a Methodist or why there were differences. And um, I think that loss of identity is really important in religion as well as in a lot of other ways. You, you have well, that's a, the best I can do. That's the best I can yeah. do at the moment. But they, they just weren't raising their kids uh, that way. And look, at a certain point, and I don't mean to beat on, 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 on liberal Protestantism, uh, but you know, you, you could be a good Demo- liberal Democrat. It didn't make any difference. It didn't really add a lot to it. Um, I don't think they sustained the spiritual and, and uh, um, theological thrust that they should have done. That's my take, anyhow. You, know, you express this very clearly in your book when you talk about liberal Protestantism losing uh, what you call its gravitational pull, and you certainly see that generation by generation. And and this leads to another part of your book that I think is really important, where you note the changes in family structure in the United States that, that have to be connected to the changes in America's religious dimension as well. Well, let me point out there to, to, to your listeners, if they pick up this book and look at the chapter headings, they will see that the word Protestant, Catholic, or Jew does not appear in any of the chapter headings, because uh, and there they'll find uh, phrases like uh, embedded religion, movement religion, uh, entrepreneurial religion, and this is to, uh, these categories, it seems to me, are more illuminating because they allow connections between religion, politics, and culture. Um, and what you're pointing to is this. Um, you cannot explain the emergence and thankfully the di- pretty much the disappearance of all the cults, some 300 according to Jay Milton, what's his name, whatever his name was, who wrote the book on this stuff. Um, Gordon Milton, I think. Jay Gordon Milton, yep. And uh, where they come from. And so, uh, well, what happened is you need recruits for cults. And in those years, um, a million kids a year were running away from home. And these weren't dirt poor kids. These weren't Tom Huckleberry Finns. These were uh, high school junior seniors, freshman, sophomore year in college. Um, we also saw the breakdown of the bourgeois, I call the bourgeoisie family, or the, or the uh, nuclear family, which is already weakened because it is nuclear. Um, and so uh, if you hadn't had the kids, the family breakdown, and you hadn't had the kids running away from whatever home life they had, you could not have had the people who joined the cults. So I call the cults, not cults, because that's a good word in my term, um, uh, but sacred families. They reconstructed the family. There were mom and dad figures in almost all those cuts. Look at Dr. Uh, Dr. and Mrs. Moon, for example, but many more. So that's where religion and culture and politics can and in this case, social transformation take come together. It's one thing to read Newsweek magazine during this entire era and understand what reading the magazine tells you about American life and about American religion during the time. But it's one thing to read it. It must have been something else entirely to have written it. And that's what makes this conversation, to me, so interesting. also write extensively about the feminization of religion and uh, and even the rise of feminist theology. And, and then you make the really interesting observation 
that feminist theology became an academic discipline, and the, then eventually it found even a dwindling audience among women because the secular feminist movement really didn't need uh, by its own self-consciousness, uh, a theology, feminist or otherwise, in order to drive its aims? Well, no, it didn't. And um, it wasn't interested in that. And certainly the founding mothers uh, were not at all religious, Betty Friedan and, and um, Gloria Steinem. I met both of these people. I wasn't impressed. I wasn't I'm certainly not impressed with their books. Um, but um, they came along at a time when a lot of women were very well educated, and they had very limited outlets for that education. And if that had not been the case, you wouldn't have seen the women's movement like you've seen it. Um, but the feminization, um, which a lot of wo- uh, women academics uh, don't like, to, they don't like the phrase, but it's true, and there were studies. Um, so, um, yeah, I take, for example, the... Um, the Catholic Church, to me, is a highly feminine organization. All right? People say, what are you talking about? I said, it's not who runs the show, you know. It's who, who does the nurturing and the raising of the kids. Synagogues, um, Protestant Sunday schools, uh, Catholic uh, schools, <laughs> they're run by women. Uh, it's the women who are doing the teaching. Um, the, um, who's, in, who's in church, whether you're evangelical or Catholic or Jewish, um, predominantly women. And uh, there's been some interesting histories of um, Christianity, which it, it appealed to women more, more and it protected them against the paterfamilias in Rome. Uh, so there's a, more women are, are, are religious. You have to ask why. One thing I'll say about the Catholics, and you notice I never use Roman Catholic, by the way, uh, throughout the book. Um, the, uh, the, uh, they, we had schools like the Jesuit one that I went to, there, there, were, there was a very masculine approach to religion. Um, you were to penetrate the world. You were to make something happen. You were to witness to your faith. Um, so that I think the Catholics on the whole did it better in resisting. But the Catholic Church has at its center the um, cult of the Virgin Mary. And um, how it can't get around it. It's highly feminized. Holy Mother of the Church. Um, they, they use gendered language all the time. And uh, um, so uh, that's a lot of what I talk about there, and that's a big part of my argument. You've got to recognize it. I mean, if you came from someplace, if you're a Hindu and you come over here and you walk into a Catholic church and you see what you Baptists don't have, which is a lot of statues, right? You're going to see an awful lot of Mary in there, and you're going to wonder who's at the center of attention. And that's why at Vatican II, they rightfully cut back on this, this uh, um, uh, veneration of, of Mary um, and put it in perspective in a relationship to her son. She's a witness to her son, after all, not to herself. In terms of, of your tenure at Newsweek, um, mm-hmm. what will be of, of interest, I think, to, to, a, to many people will be your chapter on what you entitle Entrepreneurial Religion. But at the center of that is something that took place, and the anniversary is, is basically right now. You know, 50 years ago, 1976, Newsweek famously ran the cover story, Born Again, where in the inside of the magazine, uh, they declared the year of the evangelical. What was behind that in 1976? Oh, my goodness. Um, Chuck Colson flipped his mind over this. Um, he was one of those people who read it as prophetic. 
and and said, look, 20 years earlier, time had pronounced God is dead on the cover, and now we have this. He saw it as a... Uh, vindication of something or other, and he he would come and visit. You know, he's a tall, big guy. He filled up the whole door when he walked in, and uh, I think he never quite got over that. But uh, it was a recognition. Now, you would know this better than I, but my impression is that until the Carter uh, presidency, that an awful, awful, awful lot of fundamentalists um, shunned politics as uh, like they showed in cosmetics, many of them. Um, and a lot of conservative evangelicals did the same. Um, I read all those books back in those days, so that seems to be what my, uh, my memory of that. So that when they came in, um, uh, it really did change the uh, political landscape. And as I say in the book, they came in with cleats on. Um, they hadn't been participating in party politics. They had to be taught that. So they used their churches. They didn't have the mediating structures that the Catholics had, namely the Catholics made their presence felt through the unions, through uh, sure. the Democratic Party, and so forth. Um, evangelicals didn't have any of that. So um, they uh, used the church and uh, the buses. And, uh, and then I point out, uh, maybe your listeners don't know this, that it was two Catholics and a Jew who started the Moral Majority, which was really the first organization. So they were politicized. Jerry Falwell was politicized. Uh, he was he was um, uh, picked by conservative political operatives so that they could, in the first instance, blunt the uh, evangelical support for uh, for the Democrats as they saw in Jimmy Carter. And, and, and that came somewhat afterwards. I lived through that uh, very intensely. And uh, so, I mean, I, I worked for Ronald Reagan in 1976 as a teenager. And huh. uh, I was not in the Carter movement, although I'm, I'm glad to say in Thinking of Public had a wonderful conversation with uh, former President Carter. Sure. But uh, uh, it was true. Uh, by, by the way, evangelicals voted before the rise of the of the new Christian right. They just didn't vote the way they voted thereafter, and they didn't understand themselves as a political movement. That that was really uh, uh, caused by the religious right, and uh, and the catalysts for that were were many, including uh, Francis Schaeffer and and of course uh, the the others whose names you would know. But the really interesting thing to me is that, and I was sixteen when this came out. And I will remember going to the uh, to, to the mailbox and getting out Newsweek magazine and seeing Born Again. And, and to be honest, I was 16 years old. I really didn't know that most, if not many, people in America didn't have a clue what being born again meant. So it was it was news going two ways. It, mm-hmm. y- your your uh, your cover story informed many Americans about evangelicals, but it informed a 16 year old evangelical that uh, that uh, the the elites in this country didn't have a clue who we were. Well, um, yeah, you know, in in those days, let's make a side remark on this. In those days. Uh, what I call embedded religion was religion that is embedded in the place where you live. Okay, it's place, it's geography. To this day, you're going to find you either if you go to Wisconsin, uh, the religious people are either Catholic or, or Lutheran for the most part. All that stuff in the beginning of my book about the map of America, uh, religious America. Um, if you lived where you lived and went to Columbia University, you, well, in my time, not your time, perhaps. 
Um, you came from a place where people ate differently. Um, they, all the kids weren't raised the same. They weren't watching the same television programs. They listened probably to the same Lone Ranger and, and radio programs, but that's a very different experience than television. In other words, there was some diversity, which included um, regional diversity. So, yes, you probably lived in a place where, where um, most everybody talked that language. Right. I didn't hear it growing up on the west side of Cleveland. I didn't hear that language at all, as a matter of fact. So, um, uh, again, it was a more diverse time, and diversity, as I argue in the book, was based on religion. And so, Martin uh, Marty, by the way, who, uh, uh, whom uh, we, we, we both greatly respect, uh, uh, Martin Marty told me in a, in a conversation that, uh, that he was actually on the campus of, of this school, of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, giving the Gein's Lectures in 1976. When, uh, and, and I just listened again to this, this recently. He said Susan Cheever uh, at Newsweek called him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she was on your staff uh, at the time, yeah. and, and asked him to define an evangelical. And Martin Marty said, my response to Newsweek was, you've got bureaus all over the world. Perhaps you need one in Atlanta. Well, we did have one in Atlanta, as a matter of fact, but uh, you're right. Well, listen, Chicago, where I am now, was considered the Catholic Bureau. Um, Not only the guy, a friend of mine from Notre Dame, was the bureau chief, but it was a Catholic country. So you went to different parts of of the country to to get, uh, you know, different kinds of opinion. Um, But anyhow, let me admit, this is funny, because next April... I am going to be speaking at a conference which is based on that cover story. And I am looking at what the academics are making out of it. None of them were probably around to read it at that time. And I looked at the call for papers, and i got to tell you, they are making such an intellectual fuss out of this, you know, as academics can do, as only academics can sometimes do. Um, not all of them are Martin Martys by any, by any means. And uh, they'll be postulating things from a distance. And I'm going to have a wonderful time telling them, no, that wasn't the way it was. It went this way, etc. But, um, yeah, I'm glad we did do that cover. Uh, time... The editor of Newsweek could not get enough of Jimmy Carter. Do you know that we did Jimmy Carter more than once before he got elected? We did his mother, Ms. Lillian. We did his brother with all the beer cans, Brother Billy. And at the end of it all, they sent me out to do Ruth Carter Stapleton. I don't talk about that cover story of the book. But, uh, yeah, they couldn't get a, they couldn't believe a peanut farmer. Uh, some kind of born-again crazy guy. I mean, wh- where did this guy come from? And uh, so, um, yeah, that uh, it, it, there was a recognition. That's what you're talking about. There was a salute in a direction to people who had never been saluted before. Well, indeed. And, uh, and that raises another contemporaneous issue with, uh, with Carter and, and the cover story, and that's the issue of abortion. And uh, I really appreciated how straightforwardly you dealt with that issue in your book. So talk about abortion as an issue, perhaps the issue, in terms of this great 
transformation in American religion during this period? Well, it was a transformation in American politics. I mean, it was, um, uh, and it was codified in, in 19, and people didn't expect that. And it was something like the gay thing, it was codified ahead of time. Um, and uh, I, uh, myself, I'm, I'm quite open about it, I could not believe Yes, it's a tough decision and all that sort of thing, but I could not believe that would sanction it. It just seemed to me the ultimate, the you know, the most innocent. And you can't have a conversation with a lot of people about this because all they see is the mother and and the word choice and and all of that. Um, I think things have turned, but they'll never over. Or even Scalia uh, said in one of his opinions that you probably couldn't that it was settled opinion and I, of course it's among the american people it isn't but it's 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 scary um and and and, and it's it's uh, it's built in it's a rock principle of the democratic party and they blew away a great deal of their catholic constituency with the position that they take and i'm sorry but people like uh, governor kane and whatnot are, are moral eunuchs in my mind um, one minute they're pro-choice, and the next minute they're not. Everybody who Catholic who ran for higher office had to change posture, starting with Teddy Kennedy. So I found that uh, uh, that it bespoke a coercive nature of uh, of the party itself. So um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's one of the great crosses. I mean, it's and uh, as you know, the evangelicals and the Southern Baptists in particular were late to the game. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and I think part of it was, uh, as Foy Valentine said to me one time, well, you know, uh, we don't want, Catholics have a tendency to tell other people what they should do. We don't like that. We're not for abortion, but we don't want them telling us, you know, what to do. That was his response to why they went in the direction they went at that particular point. Um, Francis Schaeffer is an interesting figure, um, or an important figure for evangel. I didn't realize it. Uh, I was not a big fan of his uh, Especially when he started talking about art of, on the uh, of the catacombs being superior to the art of today, I think he was talking more than he knew. But he was important to people like Mark Knoll and so forth, and freed them up for um, doing a lot better thinking themselves. Anyhow, um, he was important in turning people around. There's a sensitivity there that I just is mind blowing, and um, and you uh, you meet. A lot of uh, a lot of resistance to it. So, yeah, it was a reason why John, Richard John Newhouse, or a big reason why he um, changed uh, political direction, um, and it certainly has uh, an awful lot of Catholics, by me, holding their nose. Uh, it can't be the only issue because um, because the only way it can become an issue is a, a matter of appointing Supreme Court ju- judges. Um, but uh, yeah, I know that's uh, yeah. I, 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 it is such a black mark on our on our society that. Uh, but the pro-choice people, pro-life people, um, haven't prevailed. Um, they may be more m- among the young. Um, yes, indeed, and and that's one of the most amazing. Uh uh, responses to modernity, we might say, and 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 to abortion as kind of the uh, 
the moral sacrament of modernity. It is it is really interesting that the younger you go, you know, some people explain this by the ultrasound image on the refrigerator door, the, but the younger you go in this society, the more instinctively pro-life uh, that generation becomes. And uh, that's a reminder to us that, that moral change happens in more than one direction. Well, one can, uh, one can hope and pray. Um... But anyhow, to get back to something, uh, I was at a conference at, uh, on Billy Graham, where Graham and Wacker were, and I, and I told the story that I tell a story in the book about, uh, uh, I asked uh, Billy Graham uh, what it felt like to be saved, to know that you were saved, and that sort of thing. And then when he gives me his answer, um, I uh, had the conversation, as you know, with Mark Hatfield, who says I, you know, I couldn't get up in the morning, Ken, if I if I didn't know I was saved, and I said I, if I knew I was saved, I wouldn't get up in the morning. Um, I told that story at this uh, Billy Graham conference, and Leighton Ford was there, and he did not laugh. In fact, the whole audience didn't know what to do. And it's when you talk about differences, and I and I don't really bring this up in the book. There are. Um, certain kinds of differences that are not just political, but they're, I mean, not just theological, but they're experiential. They're people coming off different trajectories. And um, when I, I would be interested in what a person like yourself would say when I talked about Billy uh, telling me, you know, he doesn't go to, uh, doesn't go to church uh, when he's on the road very often. And there could be several reasons why that's the case. But when he listened to a tape of himself preaching, um, he felt as if you know he'd been at church already. Anyhow, um, there are um, the whole notion of a verbal sacrament. It seems to me, at least for for people from sacramental traditions, helps them understand uh, the role of uh, of the highly verbal uh, of, of of the verbal culture sure. of evangelical Protestantism. Um, I mean, if you're going to churches on Sunday, say you're Catholic, and the preaching is terrible, you don't mind. The mass is there, you know. Um, but uh, I don't think they understand the reverse. Evangelicals mind, I can assure you, uh, the, uh-huh. and, and, uh, and it, it's, uh, it, it's based upon uh, the, what goes back to the Reformation in terms of the centrality of preaching, and, uh, and, and, and with, without going into to, uh, to extended conversation about Dr. Sure. Graham, uh, you can't tell the story of 20th century Christianity, or for that matter, 20th century religion without him. And, uh, and and when you look at how Newsweek told the story, it, it's clear that Billy Graham appears with, with some regularity. I want to ask you a question. What was the big story you think Newsweek missed uh, during your tenure in terms of American religion? Um, gee, I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, um, I don't think we, you know, I don't think we missed anything. I mean... You'd be in a better position as a consumer of the product to say, "Yeah, but why? Why didn't you, uh, you know, mention X or uh, X or Y?" Listen, I'm Billy Graham. Before I forget, I I wrote an obit. Uh, Grant Wacker had access to it uh, since he hasn't died; it hasn't been published yet. Which is, uh, you know, my take on Billy and his career, but it's pretty much in the story. Which is, he was a changed man um, after he went to Eastern Europe. Um, uh, and, uh, he, you know, he, I think he basically learned from his mistakes of getting involved in politics and so on, but he was a man of his time. I mean, he never got over Eisenhower. He was a great father figure to him. Um, so, uh, I can't, uh, but anyhow, I can't think, what, what do you think we missed? 
Well, I, I asked that question uh, kind of as an experiment more than anything else, not an indictment. I, I, I don't really yeah. have a, a, yeah. a story that was missed except for the fact that I, I think looking back at the magazine, mm-hmm. um, it, it – it, you might not understand just how secular America was becoming and how distinct that was from uh, even the nation's recent past. I, I think there was a great uh, social and ideological hinge turning in America. And uh, I, I think maybe those who were living in Manhattan and Washington, D.C. and Berkeley, California, didn't see it because they just felt it as normal. Uh, oh, very much so. I mean uh... – that map of America uh, that shows uh, who predominates, if, if one does, one tradition, shows New York City uh, in the color of Roman Catholicism, there is the word, um, because there's so many Hispanics there. But if you come to Chicago, it's culturally like a Jewish city because uh, it's of the concentration of Jews in places, um, especially the arts, but also in philanthropy and so forth. It does um, have the feel of a Jewish city. So, um, um, yeah, I, I, they don't. And, and you've you got big churches all over the place, but somehow they're never talked about, you know. They're more like landmarks than anything right. else. I know when I, when I went south to, to, um, to the Triangle with a lot of academics, all of them were secular, um, they could not get over, uh, you know, the churches on every street corner. They really felt intimidated. They lived in an academic bubble, if you will, um, sure. where there's more sim- thought that's similar than different. Um, they uh, they just weren't used to that. They hadn't seen that. And someone said, and people actually go to them. So, um, yeah, we're balkanized in lots of ways, uh, and it's no longer geographical. It really cuts along cultural and class lines more than anything else. So uh, I don't know what you people who are in the in the ministry do, but uh, to see the drift from religion among, um, let's say, the Trump voters, right, the less educated people who've got job worries and so forth, is really quite a bit. Instead of turning to religion, they've drifted away from it. So there's cross currents that, that are hard to figure out. Indeed, and uh, this is a story that continues to be told, a, a history that cannot yet be written. Uh, and I, I, in closing, want to tell you something as a, a, as a word of appreciation. Uh, if I ever have the opportunity to write a memoir, and I honestly hope to do that at some point, uh, I have a collection of books just to remind myself of, of models that I would like to incorporate in such a work. And, uh, and your book, Getting Religion, is, uh, is one of those books. Uh, I, I think you tell the story so incredibly well, and I just want you to know I appreciated that. Well, uh, it, thank you very much. You know, I grew up at a time where it mattered, and it mattered individually and it mattered culturally. And uh, uh, the drift away from that is a big an unfortunate part of uh, the story I tell. Thanks for having me on. It's been a very stimulating conversation, and I very much appreciate your asking me. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. You bet. Bye-bye. I greatly 
really appreciated that conversation with Kenneth Woodward. For one thing, it's just interesting to talk to someone who had the perspective and the experience he had in such a rarefied atmosphere as Newsweek magazine during that time. Again, I go back to the beginning of the conversation. It's hard for most people alive today to understand just how important those Newsweeklies were to Thinking America. And it's also important to recognize that they functioned as cultural barometers. Whatever was on the cover of those Newsweeklies was in the conversation of America during that week and, for that matter, continuing for some time beyond. When you look at those cover stories and you look at the reports contained in the magazines, you are looking at a conversation taking place. But you're also looking at a conversation that from the side of the writers and the editors and the publishers of those magazines reflects how the intellectual elites in this country were trying to communicate and to shape the conversation in middle America, or at least the middle America that read Newsweek and Time and U.S. News and World Report. Among those magazines, Time was understood to have a particular theological Logical expertise, and that's reflected in the cover stories. And it goes back to the fact that behind Time magazine was the figure of Henry Luce, and Henry Luce's parents had been missionaries, Protestant missionaries in China. That's a very different situation than Newsweek, especially when Newsweek became a part of the empire of the Washington Post. And it's at that point that so much of Newsweek's influence in America really came. Its subscriptions grew and its influence as well. And at the center of this was Kenneth Woodward the religion editor, interpreting American religion for the readers of Newsweek magazine. In this newest book, Getting Religion, what you have from Kenneth Woodward is his observations of what it meant to watch America's religious life and to be assigned to do that for a major American Newsweekly through basically a century of some of the most tumultuous change in American society and, of course, in America's churches and religious institutions as well. The changes he traces in American Catholicism should be of interest not only to Catholics, but to others who understand that similar pressures and similar issues were also shaping the lives of their own churches and their own denominations. And at the same time, you come to see that what was taken for granted in the beginning of Kenneth Woodward's term at Newsweek was the dominance of the Protestant mainstream in America. But as he indicates, even by the year 1965, in a cover story that was undertaken by Newsweek at that time, virtually Virtually everything had changed. That age of the Protestant establishment was already over. And then I was very glad to talk with Kenneth Woodward about what, at least among American evangelicals, is the cover story. Back in 1976, that cover story that declared born again and in the internal pages of the magazine declared 1976 to be the year of the evangelical. The readers of Getting Religion, however, will be really interested not only in how Kenneth Woodward tells the story of the big transformations, but also his perceptive eye for very small details and his elegant phrasing, which creates many memorable moments in reading the book. When he talks about liberal Protestantism losing its gravitational pull, when he writes about his boyhood at the center of concentric circles of belonging, when he talks about entrepreneurial religion, it's very clear he sees a pattern and helps us to see that pattern as well. I also really appreciate his candor in this book. To be honest, the sections of this book dealing with the question of abortion are some of the most bracing that I have ever seen. And they come with a particular power when you understand that the author was the religion editor at Newsweek magazine. And the book is spicy in its own way, as was this conversation. And that's a part of what makes both conversation and reading always an unexpected pleasure.
Thanks again to my guest, Kenneth L. Woodward, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.